Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist, with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I am Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is David Allison, founder of the Value Graphics Database. David is an author, having written the book, We Are All the Same Age Now, Value Graphics and the End of Demographic Stereotypes. He's a speaker and evangelist for all things value-based. Welcome, David, to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me over. Thanks so much, man. I, I know we had a little bit of scheduling. You're on the move. You're always traveling, jumping around. I'm doing the same, but we found a time to coalesce and have this conversation. I'm really excited. I am too. It's hard these days, isn't it? We're all bumping and moving and flying. And I don't know anybody who's just still anymore. We're always all over the place. So I'm glad, I'm glad it all worked out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Where there's a will, there's a way. And what did they say in Jurassic Park? Nature finds a way, exactly. right? I'm going to use a little Jeff Goldblum chaos theory, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of just give us a little bit of your origin story, right? Every superhero has an origin story. So kind of walk me through what got you to value. Practice. Okay, cool. Well, I spent most of my life working in marketing and had my own marketing strategy and creative company for a long time. And I sold it about four years ago. And, you know, I'd spent so much time sitting in boardrooms with various clients saying to me, here's the audience we're trying to attract. And this is what we know about them. They're 18 to 24 years old. They're male. They make $50,000 a year. They just graduated from university. They got their undergraduate degree. They're starting their first job. So come back with some killer ideas. Let's go motivate these people to buy our thing or our service. And it just never made sense to me. And if you think about it for a moment, a room full of 18 to 24-year-olds, how much are they going to have in common with each other? Probably not much. And a room full of people who make $50,000 a year, how much do you think they're going to have in common with each other? Probably not much. And a room full of people who just got their undergraduate degree and are starting their first jobs, how much do you think they're going to have in common? Not much. So that's three zeros. You put three zeros together, that doesn't make anything other than another zero. And yet somehow when we say we're talking to 18 to 24-year-old men who've just graduated an undergraduate degree and starting a new job, that's enough information for us to go and spend billions of dollars trying to get them to do what we'd like them to do and to, trying to to motivate them to think about things differently buy a product or a service or brand so when i sold my company i started thinking about what was a better way there's a basic principle in the worlds of sociology and human behavior and consumer behavior that what we value determines what we do it really has nothing to do with our age our income our gender our marital status it's about what we value what we think is important determines how we live our lives psychologists have known this for a long time and they can give you an mmpi inventory a myers-briggs test to figure out what your values are and work with you one-on-one -on -one to align your values to your reality that's what psychology is all about sociologists and human behavior experts haven't had the data set to be able to do this with large groups of people simultaneously. What do they have in common as a few values that we can work with? How do we offer them a message, a product, a service, a brand, an idea that's aligned with those values? Well, now we have that because we've gone and built it. We've got half a million surveys, 152 languages, 180 countries. They're super, super statistically accurate, more than you need from a PhD from Harvard. 
And we can now tell what groups of people care about. And we can use that to make all kinds of wonderful things happen. Now, I want to take a, a little bit of an opportunity to move back, even before we get into the methodology behind the system or the idea, the concept. What I'd like to do is maybe think about why demographics have been so persistent, you know, for we kind of met just as background to to our listeners. You know, I, I wrote a piece um, for Media Village, which is a um, B2B website focused on marketing, advertising industries. I've, I have a weekly column for them. So a little shout out to Media Village. And, you know, I wrote this piece called The Five Persistent Zombie Ideas. That wasn't quite the title, but that was the gist of it. You know, one of them with that data is the new oil is the zombie idea that continues to be persistent. Diversity has is a function of a pipeline issue. The more you spend, the more relevant your brand will become. And then there was another piece, which was that demographics matter, right? There's this persistent idea that demographics matter. And for a long time, I would talk to organizations and say we're living in a post-demographic reality. And that piece brought us together. I think you saw it on LinkedIn or you saw it somewhere. And then we started our conversations from that moment. So kind of using a little bit of that as a backdrop, why do you think, despite those three zeros that you highlighted in your earlier response, we have this inclination to believe and, and have faith in demographics? Well, I think the, I can shorten what you just said to the thing that sparked our friendship was the word post-demographic. That's really what this is all about. We do live in a post-demographic time. Demographics have been around since pre-language. There was a, a way you had to behave back in olden days, where if you were a certain age in your tribe and you were male, there were expectations that you had to fulfill. And if you were female, there were expectations you had to fulfill. And if you were the rich guy in the village or the poor guy in the village or the one who understood how to read the stars and therefore had the education or whatever it was, there were roles and responsibilities and they were really about survival of the species. If we didn't have young women making babies and young men going out and beating up the enemy and taking over the next village, then your tribe didn't survive. So it was essential to all of us to behave in a certain way at a certain time in our life based on who and based on what we were, not who we were. Well, today we have technology that's essentially flattened the world. We have the ability to curate our own lives and we don't have to do anything at any point based on what we are. Because I'm a 56-year-old white male who lives in Canada doesn't mean that I have to do anything that I don't want to do. There's no societal expectations around that. And vice versa for yourself and whatever your, however we would describe you from a what perspective. So we don't need to use these demographic labels anymore. We don't need to look at the world with those demographic lenses. We are free and unfettered and we're able to rearrange ourselves in groups that are more driven by things other than demographics and geography. And in fact, the academic world is looking at this thing right now and they refer to it as cultural cognition, that we're all sort of becoming aware that we are in a post-demographic world and we can form groups of people based on things that we value, things we care about, and that that's more important. I want to tie this into culture and I use, there are many definitions of culture that exist. The one I use incorporates values 
basically when I when I'm talking to people about culture, what I'll say is that culture is the shared world of ideas and values that connect us and are manifested through people and places, formal and informal networks. So you have all of these forces that are tied together, values being a big part of them that make us exist in this overarching culture. And I'm trying to get this distinction between what are the values that we have within a culture and the overarching culture itself. Or do you, do you see a distinction between those things? Absolutely do. Values are the root cause of culture. What we value determines who we are, how we live, what we do. If your biggest care in the world is around family, around self-determination, and around success, that drives who you become as a human being. And if enough people share those values, you get a cultural group forming around those particular values. The academic world has given this a term, in fact. They're calling it cultural cognition. And people from all different walks of academic life are contributing papers and researching this notion that we're now starting to become aware of each other based on our cultural preferences instead of geographic preferences and demographic stereotypes. So, I mean, a silly example is you could you can be someone who thinks that building a wall between the United States and Mexico is a really smart idea. And once you've decided that that's the group you belong to, you can kind of check out because it will be very apparent within a very short period of time what you're supposed to wear, what TV shows you're supposed to watch, where your kids are supposed to go to school, what you're supposed to talk about at dinner, where you're supposed to live, where you're supposed to work. All that stuff is dictated by the cultural tribe that you've decided you're part of. You don't have to think about any of the rest of those aspects of life anymore. You've kind of abdicated those choices to the tribe if you decide that this is what you'd like to do. So cultural cognition and this notion of culture forming beyond the boundaries of geography and demographics, it's where we're headed. It's part and parcel of being a post-demographic world. You can't just remove something like demographic stereotyping without it being replaced with something else. Nature abhors a vacuum. So what demographic stereotyping is being replaced with is this notion of non-demographic, non-geographic tribal affiliations. And that's culture. That's what we're talking about. I, I love how you started to use and, and talk about various disciplines. Just in just in these few minutes, we've touched on things that come from the world of psychology, sociologists. There's my question is going to kind of lead into history. So I guess we're talking about historians to a certain extent. And but I'm curious about another thing I, I often say is that we we need to de-silo the way we think about things. You have a marketing background. I've worked in marketing, but I come from a finance background. Like we all have these different bits of ourselves that we're bringing to this to this puzzle. And how much of of understanding this idea of values was predicated upon taking knowledge sources from disparate places? Well, there's been this sort of juicy piece of fruit hanging just out of reach of anyone who studies large groups of people and how they behave values as a determinant of behavior has long been the very fundamental principle of psychology and other one-on-one -on -one disciplines and ways of thinking about other people. Sociologists are studying the behavior of masses of people 
And trying to tie them together around a common set of values just requires an enormous amount of inputs that just haven't been readily available. And I don't want to keep coming back to this, but it's true. What we've managed to do is harness algorithmic data collection technologies in a way that hasn't been possible until very, very recently. And I think as a result of sort of being the ones who went, whoa, this is this is a possible thing, we've now amassed what we believe is the very first data set in the world that measures the values of everyone on earth. So we now can understand what people in different parts of, of society, different parts of the world, how they feel about things. That's not correct. I want to make sure I'm using the right term. What they care about and what they value all over the world. We have sort of nesting questions that we ask around values that are about wants and needs and expectations. So properly said, this massive data set of a half million surveys is about values, wants, needs, expectations. But it's the values part that's interesting because that helps us predict behavior. Lots of people are collecting a lot of data right now. I'm going to go off a little bit of tangent here. You just like give me a slap if you want me to stop it. The, no, uh, but we're going we're gonna to definitely get into the data piece. So I'm, I, I want to give you okay, an opportunity okay. to explain and and kind of give us a form for how you're collecting this data and what makes it particularly relevant relative to other attempts at this or the way in which we think about data just even more generally. I think companies, all of us, not just companies, every organization out there and plenty of individuals too, we're all running around collecting as much data as we can. Your line, data is the new oil. And I think we're all started getting a little saturated stopping and going, what, what does this stuff actually tell me? What do I do with this stuff? How do I make sense of why am I collecting all of this data after all? So I think there's a bit of a shift happening. The difference between what we've done and what I've seen so far, and I'm super happy if someone else can show me some other thing that sort of sits in the same set as the data set we've built, is our data can predict how people will behave based on inputs in the future. It's predictive we have the ability to change the way masses of people will behave. Everything else I've seen is about recording how they behave so far mm -hmm. or what it is they've done up until now. So let's talk about, for example, all the companies and groups out there that are running around scraping social net and say, look, you're around your brand, people are saying this, 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 and this, and this. Well, that's cool. That's great to know, but it doesn't tell me if I can get them to say something else. It just makes me aware of what they're saying today. Sales data, how people have uh, purchased around a particular product category. They've done, you know, three times a year, they buy something like it fits into this category. That's great. That's all historical. The moment it's collected, it's historical. What we've done is by being able to profile the shared values of a target audience for any product or service or brand or idea, anything we want, we can profile an audience and say, here's what they care about. So if you know what a group of people cares about, it's very simple to give that to them. So whether you're talking about research and development, you're talking about marketing and branding, you're talking about human resources, whatever you're talking about, if you know what the people you're trying to influence care about, you can change the way they will behave tomorrow, not just understand how they're behaving today. And I think that's the key difference. And it's because of algorithmic data collection technologies that we've been able to put this massive, accurate data set together. Now, a lot of advertisers and marketers, you know, they're in the what they believe in is the persuasive business, right? That they can persuade me as a bourbon drinker that I'm going to like vodka, right? It's just if they get the right message or the right 
person or the right branding tool that I'm going to make a switch, right? And it sounds that with when you're looking at these data sets, how much of this is calculating in persuasion? Is it calculating persuasion in at all, right? Are some of these values just intrinsic, meaning that they are fairly concrete? Or are there some values that can change over time based on messaging? So a couple different questions in there. Um, I'll yeah. try and them both. First one, intuition, guesswork, and experience is what we're using right now to try and persuade. We look at a group of people, we understand them as best we can. What's their sales pattern around the vodka sector? Who are they? What else do they like? You know, we put little personas together based on what we know about them demographically, some psychographic information. And then we make a leap of faith and we use our gut. We use guesswork, we use intuition and go, okay, pretty darn sure that if we say these things to them, we're going to get them to do what we want. But at the end of the day, it's a crapshoot. Now, it wouldn't be if we knew what they cared about. If you belong to a target audience of people who we knew were all about friendship and adventure, let's just keep it simple and just use two. Mm-hmm. whole group of people in this, in this country who are about friendship and adventure, and they're all attracted to this vodka brand for some reason. We don't know why. Sometimes we can tell, but we, we're not particularly sure. But what we do know is that the people who say this brand is really interesting to me, they all share friendship and adventure. Well, now the vodka people and their marketing people and their PR people and whoever else is involved can sit back and go, huh. So what we need to do is make this the most adventurous friendly vodka in the history of humankind. Let's find a way to make this vodka out of such rare stuff, ingredients that no one's ever tasted before, that every sip is going to be a crazy adventure. You've never had an experience like this. And in fact, maybe I'm going to riff now. Maybe once a month you change the recipe or one of the ingredients or a flavoring so that it's never the same vodka drink twice. It's always something new and different and exciting. And I'm going to explore different grains from different parts of the world. And that becomes all part of the whole package of what this is about is it's never the same thing twice for people who are all about adventure. That's incredibly appealing. And then if you add a piece in there somehow that makes this about strengthening my friendships, you have adventure, you have friendships. Now you're not guessing. You're figuring out how to use those two values that we know statistically are the right ones, how to push those two buttons, how to trigger those values. The guesswork's gone, the intuition's gone. It's taken down to the level of execution around what we know are the triggers. That's what this is about. You had another question there and I totally forgot because I got all excited about answering that one. No, so it's all good, <laughs> but I think that gives us space to perhaps go a little bit deeper because what I'm always trying to figure out is margins right? Culture to me moves on the margins. It comes from those who are asking questions that the general consensus cannot answer, right? So when everything's going right for you, right? If you're in the kind of thick middle, there's no, there's not a lot of reasons to ask questions as to why doesn't this, why doesn't this work or why does it work this way or who's it serving or what's happening? It's when you're on the margins, you have to start to ask different types of questions, right? Because things aren't necessarily working in your favor. So 
when I'm thinking about values and and the constraints of where they might fit in, and maybe you can use this as an opportunity to, you know, walk through some of those values, some could manifest, you know, my thought of family could, if I say like family is a value that is really important to me, right? Because of my culture on West Indian, that could manifest itself as being, you know, very open, very welcoming, very warm, you know, whereas, and I'm, and I'm kind of painting with a broad brush here. If one were to say more of the wasp perspective of family, I'll own it, I'll own it man. I'm, I'm the wasp, you know, I'm the wasp might, on here. might be more narrow if we're kind of tracing it through this kind of Puritan slash pilgrim way of looking at the world. Right. Like that, that was my kind of piece about history. Right. Yeah. Like some groups, they value family, but only as it pertains to the familiar, right? And so you have this value that's manifesting itself in two different ways. And these are broad brush examples, which also might have some stereotyping in there as well, right? I'm, I'm not saying that they are absolutes. What I'm trying to illustrate is, or, or try to get at is some of the innate complexity about how values can be manifested. So a couple of things here. To answer that question specifically as it relates to the research we've done, we mm -hmm. don't define values for anyone. We ask people what values are important to them. We ask through secondary lines of questioning, so we're not getting any survey bias. But if family is important to you and it's important to me, that's what matters. Mm -hmm. Whether my version of family is a different version than your version of family, we're united in that family impacts us and how we make our decisions and how we live our lives and move through the world. So as a marketer who knows that you and I are actually in the same target group because we both identified family as being super important to us, we need to find out, let's shift into that third person now, the marketer needs to find out what it is they can say about their particular bottle of vodka that's going to make people go, this is, this is a family-based bottle, bottle of vodka. We shouldn't be using vodka and family. Hey, uh, you can. <laughs> you can. I, oh, sure. It's going to mean different things to each of us. It's everybody mm -hmm. in the group who said family is important. It's going to have a different idea of what family is about. But who are we as researchers to say this is what family means? And who are we as marketers to say this is what family means? If we're going to build a family-based message around a product, we need to be able to cover the broad spectrum of what that means to the people we're talking about. What's different is we know for sure, statistically, that it's family that we need to be trying to trigger, not some other thing that, as I like to joke, you know, the CEO of our company was on a trip in Europe last year. He saw something really cool that some other vodka company was doing, so we should be doing that. No, it's family. That's what the stats have to say. So let's just spend our time thinking about how we can make family come to life and become part of our brand. You also mentioned about people, like it's not until we're on the margins that we start changing the way we think about things. And I love that, love that notion. And it's particularly true when it comes to what we're talking about. We are so on the margins of utility around demographics, but we just don't know it. We're not aware of it. So the other thing this data set we've built does is it measures how horribly inaccurate demographics are. I'll give you a couple of quick stats just to point it out. So we have half a million surveys around the world and a random stratified statistically representative sample. It's plus or minus 3.5% accurate, 95% level of confidence. This stuff is rock solid. And if we just isolate baby boomers out of that, sec that whole study, 
So how often do they agree with each other on 420 different metrics that we've measured? Values, wants, needs, and expectations, but primarily those values that determine how we behave. Baby boomers only agree with each other 13% of the time, one, three, 13% of the time, which means 87% of the time, baby boomers disagree on everything that it means to be alive and human and walking on the planet Earth. So how many companies have targeted baby boomers thinking that they're somehow similar to each other? If they do everything perfect, which they won't because we never can, but if they did everything perfect, they could get an ROI on every dollar an hour they spend targeting baby boomers of 13%. But I'm going to say they're probably not going to be perfect. Let's say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're two thirds perfect. So they're going to get like a nine or 10% ROI on every dollar an hour they spend. So then you flip that percentage back up. Let's say we're being 10% efficient with our spend against baby boomers. Every ad, every message, every hour of staff time, we're getting a 10% ROI because we're doing things pretty darn well. That means if you look at the trillions of dollars that are being spent trying to communicate with baby boomers through digital media and SEO and public relations and advertising and marketing and television, all these different things, we spend trillions every year 90% of it is wasted because we can only potentially be 10% accurate. What could we do with that 90% of those trillions of dollars if we knew who was actually interested in our product and service? And instead of saying it's about baby boomers, we said it's about white guys and black guys and trying to get them to drink vodka based on family. Now we're not going to be 90% inefficient. So we're already so on the margins. It's like the margins have come and gone. That horse has left the barn. The, the house is on fire. I mean, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use, demographics are a terrible, terrible, broken, wasted opportunity. We have to just stop using them as a way to try and understand each other from a, from a marketing perspective. Now, I always get criticized for this because I get all excited about demographics being ridiculous. Demographics are still useful to identify a group of people. But what we ask demographics to do that we must stop if we would like to be more efficient is to also tell us how that group of people is going to behave. It's fine to fence off a group and say, look, I only want to talk to people who are, you know, between this age and this age and make this much money and live in New York. That's cool. Still need to do that. I used to work in the real estate business. I make jokes about, you know, when we, when we were building condo towers, our developers were building condo towers, the clients that we had and there are $3 million penthouses in there, we knew darn well it wasn't going to be 18-year-olds who make $30,000 a year buying a penthouse. There's a demographic description that makes sense. But what we could never do before was say, for this product, for that demographic, what do those people care about? Well, now we can. And so that just improves the efficiency of everything that we do. And I like to talk about it as values thinking. You know, everybody's familiar with the phrase design thinking. This is values thinking, and it's just a way that whether you use my data or just change the way you look at the world and start thinking about values when it comes to identifying and understanding the people around you. I think the world will end up being a better place if we can focus on what each other cares about instead of the color of your skin and your income and your education and whether you're male or female. None of that stuff matters. Well, a lot of these concepts, like, and you know, just to keep going with the boomer example, you know, obviously there was another piece I wrote about OK Boomer mimetic that was going around and you know we were kind of pitting baby boomers against everyone else whether that's gen x or millennials or gen z again using 
the demographic notations for the purposes of this conversation, right? And, you know, I say often that millennials are like China, you know, when people don't really know what else to say about a issue, they'll just say, oh, millennials, right? And, and you know, when people are confused about what's going on in the world, oh, this stock market's down, oh, it's gotta be China. Oh, stock market's up, gotta be China. Like, you know, just the, it becomes this universal answer for everything. And I think millennials in marketing and advertising, and, and maybe that is shifting now toward Gen Z as millennials now crest to their 30s on the top end of that, of that mark. But, you know, how do we get past this sort of warfare when there's a bigger conversation to be had? Wow. I wish I knew the answer. There's so many inputs that will be involved for us to get past this. It's been going on since the beginning of time. There's writings you can find from Socrates about back in his day, you know, teenagers today, they're sitting around their parents' basements and playing, you know, Nintendo, whatever the equivalent was back in Socrates' time. So people have been complaining about the new kids forever. It's just what we do as humans because they're different than us and therefore they're stupid. That's how we we like to think about the world. So that's, that's going to have to get replaced with some facts. And I think that some of the stuff that we've discovered can help with that. I mean, we talk about boomers being 15% aligned. Millennials, you bring up millennials, or sorry, boomers, 13% aligned, but millennials are 15% aligned. Generation X is 16% aligned. Men and women are 10 and 11% aligned on all their values, respectively. There isn't a single demographic label that holds any water anymore. And by the way, across the entire data set, just by virtue of being human, we all agree with each other about 8% of the time. So all these numbers I'm throwing out, you got to knock off the table stakes. The table stakes are 8%. So we talk about some group of people being 13% aligned. Well, we're all aligned by 8%. So really the lift you're getting is marginal, marginal. It's basically non-existent. In fact, there's research from other statisticians and researchers I've seen out there that shows that the similarity between generational cohorts, people within a generational cohort are less similar to each other than they are to people in other generational cohorts. That in fact, the inverse of what all these memes have to say is actually the truth. That you're more similar in bands that cross across all generations than you are the band called your generation. And I love this because that's basically what our data has shown, is that you're going to be more similar to people who are like you based on values across all age groups and all demographic categories than you're going to be based on people within a, a, a vertical slice of, of a population. I talk about slicing the bread the wrong way, right? We've been slicing mm -hmm. the bread like this forever and picking out a couple slices and saying, oh, these are the slices I want to pay attention to. But if we slice the bread horizontally, you may find out we actually have a baguette and that the group we're talking about is much bigger than, we're, than we thought we had when we were just talking to 18 to 24 year olds or just talking to millennials, or just talking to baby boomers. Those slices, they're not, they're not just, they're just not working for us anymore. And I want to get to these, these slices, you know, to use, you know, I, I want to keep piggybacking off of the language that we're using because I think it's, it's valuable language in order to make these distinctions. And I, as I was preparing for this conversation, I, I started to think about things like time and velocity, you know, so sort of technical, physical world overlays into, into some of these ideas. And do you think there's a lag 
in values relative to society in the sense that, you know, I often push back on people with polling. And, you know, and it's this is going to be a political example, but it could be about anything where they'll say like, oh, well, the polls say this, right? So we can't do this yet because polls say majority of Americans don't agree with that. And I say, well, you know, in the 60s, the majority of Americans didn't agree with desegregation, right? They didn't agree with interracial marriage. Like, we can't do what's right based on polling, right? So I use that example to say that there was a lag in what the values were saying relative to the legislative willpower to do something differently. So I'm curious, and this doesn't have to be a... um political or social example, but that was the one that came to mind to that very clearly illustrates lag. So I'm curious, like what you think about that or what you might've seen in your research about that sort of idea of lagging values, society versus other things. Part of the lag you're talking about is how those polls are constructed. If you call there's some major, major polling companies who are consistently quoted every night on CNN and some of the other stations too, I'm sure, where the data that they're releasing, according to a new poll by XYZ polling company, they've called a couple hundred people at dinner, said, hey, who are you going to vote for? And people say, oh, I'm going to vote for this guy. I'm going to vote for that guy. How they actually behave behind the curtain when it's time to cast their vote isn't incredibly different than what they're saying to the guy who's called them while their chicken's getting cold on the dining room table. That's part of the lag. What we're testing and what is the actual behavior are two very, very different things. We did a little poll a while ago, a little poll. We talked to 1,350 Americans. So that's a statistically accurate number that as far as I'm concerned, every one of those polls on that they're quoting on television every night should be get at least 1,350 people in a random stratified sample, by the way. So those 1,350 people that we talked to, and we said, so how are you feeling about things? We found a couple of groups of people who are united by values, who are going to vote in ways that none of the candidates seem to be aware of. I have my favorite candidate, as everybody does, and I'm not going to plug one way or another here, but it would be, I'd love to be able to get a hold of their team and say, here's what we found out. I'll tell you really quickly what we found. We found a group of people who never vote, never. They're united around one set of values that have a lot to do with providing for their family. The metric, as we describe it in our data set, is meeting basic needs. These are folks who are probably holding down three or four different jobs just to get the kids out the table and they're super happy at the end of the day if there's been three hot meals and the kids are well, you know, clean clothes and they're out to school and their homework's done and they've managed to get through their two and a half jobs at the shifts that they had to do that day. Who's got time to vote? That's the top of the Maslow's needs hierarchy. We're functioning down here at the bottom, but this time they're coming to vote. And we know they're coming to vote around issues of the economy because they feel threatened around their values of family and meeting basic needs. So this is an entire group of people that none of the politicians are talking to because why would we? They don't vote, except this time they're gonna. So if you're a smart politician, you're gonna start figuring out, how do I talk to these people who are just trying to meet their basic needs, worried about their family? How do I get them to vote for the policies that I'd like to see put forward? The other group that we found that was really surprising that none of the other polling companies seem to have tapped into, by the way, when we initially asked questions of people, the same set of 
concerns comes up, it's immigration, economy, healthcare. Those are the top three issues. Exactly what Gallup and all the other polling companies are saying. But ours goes deeper because we go into values. So we found this other group of folks who vote all the time. They've voted every single election since they've been of age. And what they're united around is what I call healthcare fatigue. They don't think it's fixable. They just don't think it's going to get done. They've seen a candidate after, after elected, a representative after elected, you know, everybody's taken a run at this thing and it hasn't really gotten solved as far as they're concerned. So they're switching from healthcare, immigration, and the economy to environmentalism, immigration, and the economy. The green vote is going to be so much larger in this election than anyone thinks. So if it was me, if I was running, heaven forbid, there'd be, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be two things I'd focus on, these two stealth groups that no one is expecting. Those folks who are just worried about keeping food on the table for their kids, who are coming to vote for the first time for many of them around issues of the economy, and this group of people who vote regularly, who are suddenly not going to be so concerned about healthcare, and it'll be all about the environment. What are we doing to talk to both those two groups? I don't see a whole lot being done. There's token stuff, but we're all focused on healthcare, immigration, the economy, because that's what the polling companies say that we should be focused on. I sure hope the people that I would like to see win end up winning. If any of them are listening to this and they want the data around what we found, I'm happy to give it give it to them. I feel you. But the other thing about lag time, I want to just touch on yeah. quick. There's this thing called heuristics, which is the study of, of how people process information a super, super high, crazy, like just generalization. Heuristics is about how there's short thinking and long thinking. Short thinking goes back to olden days and how we survived. We see a saber-toothed tiger coming at us. We know that's a bad thing. We better run away. It could be actually a very, very nice saber-toothed tiger who just wants to have a little cuddle. But as far as we're concerned, this is a bad situation. Let's get out of here. The example I like to use is three little old ladies walking down the street in Chicago late at night in a bad part of town. And you're walking towards them and your immediate reaction is, oh, those poor little old ladies, my gosh, they, they could be killers with knives in their back pockets for all you know. But you stereotype them and go, they must be in distress. They're sweet little old, sweet little old ladies. We've never phrased for it. Now, that same moment in time, instead of those three sweet little old ladies coming at you, you see three young black guys coming at you. Those three young black guys could all be social work PhDs from the local university, but that's not what your brain says. Your brain says, this isn't the same situation as those three little old ladies who were coming before coming at me earlier, so I'm going to react to it entirely differently. That's short thinking. And this is, again, about survival of the species. We judge people based on what they are because that's how we survived. If we're going to change this and get rid of this lag, we have to actually tackle this genetic imperative that we have around judging people quickly and actually take the time to understand what people, not what people are, but who people are before we come to conclusions about how we're going to react. But I think that some of that judging is not only a function of our values. I think it comes back to that bigger macro idea of culture mm. in the sense that we are, those impressions that one gets are being built into our brain not because of necessarily how I was brought up, but by any number of images that I'm being told. It could be historical, it could be mythological, it could be any number of things, right? So in the flip of that example, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I'm either behind 
a white woman or she's coming toward me, I'm the one that's nervous, right? Because all of my history tells me that they're dangerous to my life because if they claim something happened or they get nervous, then I'm nervous, right? So I try to speed up to go past them, right? There's nothing more alarming to me than walking down the street in New York City behind a white woman. <laughs> you know, wow, man. I mean, you, you know, very different realities. I'd never even thought of that before. Yeah, that's their true. their nervousness is life threatening to me, and and so I think like that's part of the conversation, right? This is where that culture and values piece I think becomes so essential, right? That we're looking at things through lenses, and and the lenses. The question is as to why, right? Um, and and I think the sticky part is to one can justify their why, and then we got to dig deep to find out what well, is the why relevant. You know, does the why make sense? You know, and I think that's the challenge with data, right? Data tells us, gives us one veneer, and then we got to do that heavy lifting to kind of dig a little deeper, right? Like you've collected this incredible data set, and now it's about making sense of it, right? That was that was one of my predictions for 2020 that I think we need to spend more time in this year making sense of things, right? Yeah, I agree. I First off, on behalf of white people everywhere, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'll, just an awful I'll take, story. <laughs> I'll take it, but, you know, it's all good. It's n- nothing personal. <laughs> um, it's a crazy reality for me to just suddenly become aware of. The values thing... There's all kinds of different ways to look at the data that we're collecting. I try to do this in a way where I don't sound like I'm just raining on everybody's parade, but so much of the data we're collecting is as a result, what we can glean from it are behaviors, emotions. Like I saw a thing this morning about a company is all excited. They're sending, they're releasing their new, their annual report on, I think they called it brand intimacy. So they've measured how intimate people feel around different brands and then they rank them and then they're talking about how the, you should hire them to, to help you figure out how, how to improve your intimacy rating with your consumers. Well, that's about a feeling. Feelings arise from our values. Feelings are fleeting. You can have a really great warm, fuzzy feeling around a brand one day, bad, one bad thing happens. You got a whole different set of feelings around that, but your values don't change. Your values are rock solid. Values only change under two conditions. One, gradual, slow, glacial change over decades. So people in the 1950s were very, very different than people in the 1970s. So there's a series of slow, tiny, tiny, imperceptible changes that over the course of decades have resulted in a different set of values coming to the fore. The other time when values will change is a catastrophic event. And there's a lot of argument in psychology, sociology, human behavior, what's, what qualifies as catastrophic? There's certain points that everybody can agree on. 9-11 was a catastrophic event. Values got changed that day. My candidate gets elected as president of the United States. My candidate doesn't get elected as president of the United States. That's not catastrophic. That's I'm going to process this new reality with my values and I'm going to react to it based on my value set. And so those values will come into play in a different way. I'll be using my values to maneuver this new reality in a slightly different way than if a different outcome had come along. 
Values, I like to talk about like socks in the sock drawer. You got a set of values and they're yours for the rest of your life. It's like passports. You know, somebody who's got three or four passports to three or four different countries where they're a citizen. At this moment in time, they're living in the United States. They're studying here, let's say. Their American passport is very, very important to them. Their Irish, British, and Spanish passports are in the sock drawer. Later, they meet a beautiful girl and they move to Spain. And the Spanish passport is super important. The American passport goes back in the sock drawer. It's still their passport. They're still a citizen of all those countries. But the values that they're using at any given moment in time can change around based on the environment they're in, the circumstances they find themselves in. But values stay with you for your life. Once they've fully formed, they don't leave. So values are what we need to be taking a look at to understand all the other data. If we see a bunch of data that says people are feeling really happy about a particular brand or intimate about, you know, Apple or whatever the favorite brand of the week is, that's going to be because of what they value and how it's interplaying with whatever their experience has been around that particular brand at that moment in time. The values is the root of it all. So what's beautiful about this and frustrating is that sociological data takes interpretation. There is no black or white. It's not data like, oh, 72.66666% of the audience believes this. It's no, it's like everybody in this audience for this particular brand of vodka, we'll go back to the vodka, they all value creativity. So you have to sit around with everybody who's involved in that vodka and say, what do you think that means? What do we do with that? What do you guys think over there in the R&D department? What do you guys think in the human resources department? What do you guys think about that in sales? What do you think about in marketing? How about you, Mr. CEO? How do we take creativity in this context for this audience, for our product, and make it mean something? And the next day, I'll be in another boardroom saying to a group of people who are selling hedge funds, trying to get institutional investors to pay attention to their particular hedge fund and say, the people we found who are interested in your hedge fund, the institutional investors you're chasing, are keenly... They, they hold creativity very highly. It's one of their core values. The same value, two different boardrooms, two different products, B2B, B2C. The, the interpretation of creativity in that second boardroom is going to be incredibly different than it was in the first one. But the thing that's beautiful is we now know that we should be sitting in those boardrooms talking about creativity, not about whatever else we think we might be talking about. No, I, It focuses us. I definitely think that's, that's fair. And it's interesting because I was going to, ask you about this kind of ebb and flow in you can maybe not generationally maybe not over time but you know the norms in which we move around in does does shift and change like for example for me i think of the 2000s as sort of like the douchebag 2000s like it was it was like okay to to kind of be an asshole right you had you know, sort of the bottle service scene in, in nightclubs, you know, it was the spending a lot of money was the thing that was important. You know, even things like pickup artists and this idea of womanizing, right? Like I, I'll say a show like Entourage, which I really enjoyed, there's no way Entourage gets made today. Like HBO will never make that show in today's climate, right? Things have kind of shifted. That some of them have morphed, right? Like the pickup culture of that time has turned into like incel complete assholes in this time, right? Like it's sort of like on steroids gone in a different direction. Not getting down that road, but what I want to ask and kind of- road. We should talk about that one. You yeah, go ahead. I, we'll come back and talk about that. Yeah, I, I want to get into that that meat of, you know, the shift, like like hustling, right? Like 
hustle culture. Now you're seeing pushback against that where it used to be if you wrote a post about, oh, my God, I was working till like four o'clock in the morning and eh, it's so great. Like I never stop. Now people will be like, oh, what's going on with you? Right. Like there's a are you taking are you taking care of yourself? Like now we're more keen to our our well-being in a total way, not just this sort of hustle. And I'm kind of pit, you know, I send out a bunch of different things, but I'm just kind of curious about those those kind of shifts. And I want to get your broad thoughts on that before I get into the last two segments of the show. So that I set you up, but then I'm going to shift you again. I like talking about this because it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, when we try and have these conversations, keep them too academic and it's way more difficult. Let's talk about what you just laid out as what was going on in the year 2000. The, what did you call it? The, the douchebag 2000s. The douchebag 2000s. Yes. Uh, so Hardy and still here. Cowboy hats. <laughs> I believe it's still here. The outward manifestation of that has changed. It's not going to be Ed Hardy and cowboy hats. It's not cocaine. It's, I don't know, MDMA. There's that same group of people motivated by those same values who are living because those are the things they care about. They're just got different tools. They got different outfits. They got different verbiage they got different music they got different activities they're still doing it for the same reasons the values are still the same what we're seeing is the outward manifestations that have changed over the course of time there's still people who are motivated by status and status today to that group is going to look a little different than it did before but it's still about status at the end of the day so that's why this sociological fuzzy data with continuous dimensions attached to it needs to be interpreted in a context that includes current society and culture and what kind of product category we're talking about. What do we know about these people demographically? And what do we know about them psychographically? All really is important, but it all has to focus on what do they value? What do they care about? If we hope to change their behaviors. I think it's a great example. It's an absolutely great example. I may actually steal that and use it on stage as a way to talk about this because everyone can relate to what they're, adolescent, mid-teens or late teens, or when it's supposed to be like late teens, not mid-teens, you're not supposed to be drinking. Don't, don't, <laughs> young kids out there listening to this, don't think that means you can drink. It's about people who are of legal age drinking and doing the things that they do when they're that age. That's awesome. Feel free and, and just cite. <laughs> That's the only thing I'll say. I want to get us into Off the Dome, which are just a, a couple of rapid fire questions just to get you, just to get you thinking. All right. Now you you're you live in Vancouver, so I'm assuming. See, I'm making a, a generalization that there's a decent amount of like outdoor aspects to your personality. You know, am I assuming that correctly, or am I totally off base? I love nature. My favorite Woody Allen line: "I love nature. I just don't want any of it on me." Okay. <laughs> my idea of enjoying the great outdoors is on the other side of a plate glass window and a nice chair with a drink in my hand. So okay, well, even, yeah. even really? that in and of itself is a question that we've, that we've now gotten off the dome okay. nature on the other side of the plate glass. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. Now for drinking mm. bourbon or scotch. Oh, scotch all the way. And actually Japanese scotch right now, oh. Japanese Whiskies and scotches are amazing. I'm sorry, Scotland. You're losing the race. Wow. The Scots have been put on notice. Mm -hmm. Now, you've, you've had a lot of different jobs within marketing, advertising. You've, you've had your agency. You've sold that successfully. What is the most thankless job 
that you've had in your career? The most thankless job. Yeah. Not necessarily the, the most junior, but what was the most thankless? I have to say advertising copywriter. Everybody's an expert. You can spend 20 hours crafting the perfect nine-word headline for a billboard for an outdoor campaign, and people walk in and go, eh, how about this? And because they outrank you or they're the ones with the checkbook, that's the one that gets used. Yeah, advertising copywriting is a hard game, hard okay. game. <laughs> I have a lot of copywriter friends who will probably agree with that. <laughs> and and I, okay, I wanted we we got through my rapid fire off the dome. I want to get to the drop. Now, the drop is just a tasty morsel, a little intellectual piece of something that we can give to our audience. I have a drop queued up. What's your drop for our listeners? Well, I hate to disappoint. It's not going to be intellectual, but I have to suggest that everyone goes and sees the Tom Hanks movie about Mr. Rogers uh, called It's a Beautiful Day. I didn't think I was going to like it. I actually didn't like the first 10 minutes. And then I sat on the edge of my bed in a hotel room weeping. And not because of the storyline, but because this man was the most amazing personification of living true to your values, living your truth, which is no other, it's just another way of saying living your values. This guy did everything based on what he believed was right, what he cared about. And it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful way for me to watch this and go, you know, there are people out there who get this, who understand that our values are everything. So for me, it was an incredibly inspiring and instructional film. That's awesome. I, I haven't seen that movie yet. I'm a big Tom Hanks fan. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out. I did see the documentary on Mr. Rogers. Um, yeah, I did see that. So that's next on my list. If the movie affected you, the documentary, forget it. Like, it's unbelievable. And I believe it's available on demand on HBO, but not 100% okay. sure of that. But I think so. Um, okay. And, and drops don't have to be intellectual. They can be, I'm def, okay. <laughs> that's just my poor choice of words, but I think almost anything can be intellectual, right? Um, so my drop is actually a, a book this this time around. And it's, I was just in The Strand, which is one of my favorite bookstores here in the city. It's actually probably my favorite bookstore in the city. And I always go in there and I have to resist buying something and I failed this time. And um, I just picked up this book that was just kind of beautifully designed and it, it's called Origin of Inspiration. And it's a collection of essays by a African artist. Um, his name is Samuel Adoke. And that's A-D-O-Q-U-E-I. And it's just a, a collection of his essays around how we navigate through our inspiration, how we find our inspiration. I found it incredibly meaningful. It's the kind of book that you can pick up, put down, refer to whenever you need to and, and pull out little nuggets. So um, that's my drop for this episode. Um, cool. Got that book. I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was a great conversation. And every time I talk to you, whether it's a general conversation or a podcast or though this is our first podcast, or I interviewed you for Media Village. So check out that Media Village piece for any listener who has not done that. Check out that interview. I always feel that we walk away from this just having scratched the surface. So, um, you know, I, I predict that we're going to have plenty more conversations in our future. Here's open. I really enjoy myself. Thank you so much for being interested. Thank you for uh, sharing some values with me. Thank you so much. 
It's been great to have David Allison, founder of Value Graphics, join me on the deep dive. Our values have never been more important, and his work is essential to better understanding why they matter to brands and marketers. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoying what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.